0: good evening uh welcome to another episode of the jackaman show i am paul prescott um usually jen jen or ariella would be with me but both are off tonight um and actually ariella is close to having a baby so she might make cameos from um you know, here here and then, um, but she'll be going on maternity leave soon. So tonight I'll be joined by our great producer, everyone's favorite uh, poster, the great young Kale.
1: <laughs> I don't know about everyone's favorite poster, but uh appreciate the intro. Right. My, my favorite poster, at least. Thank you. How's it going? Uh, pretty good. How are you doing? Doing well. Doing pretty well. Um, excited about tonight's show. I'll, yeah. I don't want to... I don't want to usurp you right now. If you want to give us the introduction yeah, yeah. for what so, we're talking about?
0: We're going to be talking all things public education, which, of course, is near and dear to my heart. We're going to have um, Megan Erickson, who's a writer and uh, editor at Jacobin, who writes a lot about education. We're going to have two Red for Ed strike leaders, uh, Re- Rebecca Gorelli from Arizona and Jay O'Neill from West Virginia, who both played critical roles in the um, great Red for Ed teacher strike wave
1: in 2018. So I'm really pumped for that yeah and Paul, you're also a public high school teacher, so yes. maybe maybe even before we get started with them, maybe it makes sense to ask you how how has been you know you've been teaching now for i think like a year and a half now in the pandemic how how has that been going? yeah, since about last mid march or or early April um
0: yeah i mean it it's crazy I don't know how else to say it, but I mean obviously. And I've talked about on the show before about, you know, what we've been dealing with and teachers across the country about unsafe reopenings. Um, I've been pretty fortunate that we've stayed virtual and we just actually went back in the buildings um, and ninth graders are coming back. They started on Monday. Um, only a few have chosen to come back. But, um, you know, obviously virtual is not ideal, you know, but um as I I said, kind of in a segment I did a while ago, you know, it's not like there's no learning happening. So I think many schools, you know, we're, we're making it work. Students are still learning. Um, but you know, I think
1: most of us want, want to get back in the classroom as long as it's safe. Right. Something that I think the pandemic has exposed in some ways, just because of the, the constrictions it's put on society is, is just how, um, how little time, how little freedom that we have in so many different ways in our lives that like when you, when you do get, when things get a little bit tighter, all of a sudden, you know, what might've been an inconvenience starts to become a crisis. And, uh, because so much of what is, is so much of how people get by today, um, it's, uh, it falls on them to, to make ends meet. There's no, there's very little sense of, um, you know, society looking out for people. Uh right. and this has been, of course, the you know, the rollback of the welfare state. But I think it's kind of interesting that in some ways teachers have actually been able to somewhat successfully here and there uh fight back against um uh calls to reopen, for instance. Right. Uh and and again that's something that you've covered, but um, you know, it just is the case that teachers in America today are among, you know, the most organized and also the most militant uh, sectors uh, in the country. Right. And so, you know, I think that's, you know, in some ways, you know, we, we want to be able to um, we don't just want to be kind of reactive and, and you know, thinking like, well, what sectors, uh, you know, are, you know, strategic um, and then looking to which sectors have energy in them. but. It is the case that when, um, and we're going to talk about this pretty soon, but that like when teachers have fought back, um, there has been this ripple effect throughout society where their actions actually do, um, affect society as a whole. And it does, uh, slow down the ability for, um, you know, when I, when I mean society moving, I mean, we're really just talking about, you know, companies making profits um, of keeping workers showing up to work every single day, uh, and so if teachers are out, then you know ultimately students are out, and therefore parents are right. potentially out of work, and and it has this effect where now, um, and this is how Jay McAlvey puts it, that it, it has a way of pulling in the entire community, um, right? And so it's I think it'll be interesting to see both like how far that can go, and then and then limitations of you know because um, ultimately we're trying to figure out how do we build a massive, broad labor movement. And, uh, and so far, obviously, teachers are an essential part of that. And we have to kind of figure out how one sector plays off of another sector. Right.
0: And yeah, I think it's amazing when you see how the union, teachers unions that have been very successful um, you know, in the last few years or decade, like the Chicago Teachers Union, the um, Los Angeles Teachers Union, that have built up these great infrastructures. These are the unions that went in the action, went into action during the the COVID crisis. And you know, UTLA's reopening agreement was among the strongest in the country. And there's no, you know, it's, that's not a fluke. That's because they had already built up this organizing infrastructure that they just translated over um, during COVID. And you know, and I, I think it, it's re- everyone keeps talking about how COVID has revealed so much, and it's revealed what I think people already knew, but how crucial public schools are just as like a function of childcare Um, and obviously for learning, but just literally the fact that this is an institution that we look after um, children and youth and, you know, and and this is crucial for working people, but also other things like educational inequality. And, you know, I, I talked about how it's been so annoying that people for years have always been okay with public school funding, getting gutted all. all, of a sudden are so worried about the achievement gap and, and falling behind but it really has forced the issues in new ways, like you know we've been talking about in Philadelphia the conditions of our school buildings for a long time. But this has now put it front and center when we look at how our buildings couldn't open because of ventilation issues, and we talked about the fans and all that. Um, so it, it really is kind of just putting these issues a uh, front and center.
1: Right. I mean, and that's the in some ways, obviously, you know, for most workers, the the boss is. Their focus is we need to make a profit and, uh, in your safety, the, the, the conditions of the workplace, those are mostly secondary concerns, uh, from the standpoint of the boss. And, um, but sometimes, you know, they will, you know, they'll have the pressure to, you know, we probably should, uh, you know, update things. We should, um, you know, actually we'll end up making more money if we, uh, you know, have a safer workplace. But obviously, that's not the situation for public school teachers, that there is no boss. And so in some ways, there has just been this uh, just this rot that that's kind of, um, you know, been progressively taking over education for, um, you know, at least 30, 40 years. But uh, and so this is where, you know, the the ability of teachers to fight back becomes that much more essential to conditions getting better not obviously not just for them but for for students and for you know the everyone effectively people you know that everyone as they're going through the education system um which actually it's probably it brings us to uh what i think you wanted to talk about before we bring on our guests which is charter schools
0: right and and someone actually uh viewer flagged this for me on twitter so twitter does have some use kale come on don't be so against online um But I think it's a great example of how charter schools um, and the the school, the charter school movement, school privatization, they mobilize language or racial justice in ways that I think undermine public education. And I think first, you know, I want to just establish that to be very clear, like when we talk about charter schools, the enemy is not a parent who sends their kid to a charter school or students of charter schools or even teachers. You know, I think what we're saying is that actually parents should not be in this position where they're forced. To make that choice. And we really wouldn't need charter schools if we adequately funded public schools. Um, But just to be clear about who is not the enemy in this, but in this situation, um, this viewer highlighted this article about um, a Kansas City school board election. And so records amounts of money are being spent by outside groups, and especially this one group called Black KC, which stands for Black Leaders Advancing Quality Urban Education. They spent over $100,000 on ads and political consultants for the race. And um, Black KC is backing a candidate, Tanisha Ford, who is the executive director of Kaufman Scholars, which is a scholarship program, but they also have their own charter schools. So the concern by people is that this outside money is being put to use so that they can expand charter schools in Kansas City. And so as Black KC has been criticized or people express skepticism, they position themselves as progressives on racial justice to um, deflect criticisms. And, and this is common in the charter school movement. They, they really have mobilized the language of the civil rights movement, and they use very real inequalities and disparities in education um, to mobilize support for their agenda. And, and just to throw out, you know, one of the sections from this article, you know, it says like in most urban districts, black students underperform their white peers in Kansas city public schools in 2019, the state report card showed that about 18% of black students were proficient or advanced in English, compared to nearly 50% of white students who scored proficient or advanced on state assessments. Hill, who is the, um, one of the founders of Black KC, said she believes the candidates backed by Black KC, both black women, are being targeted because of their race. And anytime black people advocate for their kids, we get sidetracked with all this other boogeyman stuff, she said. And I think it's a way to weaponize white fragility and to scare Kansas City. Um, And, you know, and here's the problem. So charter schools, if people are wondering, you know, what 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 is the issue here? You know, they are publicly funded, but privately operated. And so they do divert funding away and take funding away from public schools. And they often serve to um, destabilize school districts Um, and just throw up another section from the article. That kind of gets at this saying nearly half of the students living in the boundaries of KCPS have moved to publicly funded charters. In 2013, Kaufman and the Hall Family Foundation funded a report examining a complete overhaul and state takeover of Kansas City schools. Indianapolis-based CEE Trust led the effort and in the report argued that the district school system was ineffective. The report encouraged a new way of managing schools. In general, parents could choose what school to enroll their children in. Schools would have autonomy over many decisions, including what and how they teach, and would be held accountable for student performance and test scores. And if they are successful, schools would be encouraged to grow. Um, and when I read that, I, I kind of felt like I was reading deja vu of what has happened in Philadelphia. And in, you know, in 2001, this law called Act 46 was passed, which was essentially a state takeover of the public schools. And during that time, an unelected school board was imposed. Um, Teachers were banned from striking. And this existed all the way up till 2016. And the effect of this was, you know, they're saying Philly is a, a district in distress. We need to take over. But what they really ended up doing is totally disrupting the district even more. And so during that time, you have a huge rise in charters. You have a bunch of school closings. You have a new program rolled out in the district every year, and then scrapped, and a new one coming out, you know, the next year. Um, and this is what people in Kansas City who are against this charter group are saying: is that you know what we need is stability, and they're saying we've been making improvements and um, you know rearranging everything and providing for the growth of charters is not going to help the situation. And again, charters, you know, in Philadelphia, the public school district has to subsidize a lot of the operations of charters but every time a student leaves public schools for charters public school dollars are getting taken away and again if we there are real issues here you know there are inequalities but it comes back to supporting public schools and the more public schools are undermined the more these disparities are going to um, play out and we're seeing this a similar thing happening in philly now where there's this group called the african-american charter schools coalition which has formed to challenge discrimination against um, black-led charters. And the, the last graphic here from this article just came out today as I was thinking about this subject. Um, this coalition launched last year and now encompasses 20 schools serving 15,000 students. It has cited an analysis the group did that showed black-led charters made up 19% of the city's charter community but account for 87% of the schools closed or recommended for non-renewal by the school board between 2010 and 2020. Black schools should be and must be a viable option, Larry Jones, CEO of Richard Allen Prep Charter School in Southwest Philadelphia said during a news conference, which called for a moratorium on closures of black-led charters until a probe is completed. And I think this is very cynical. And I think if you look at the context of what has been happening in Philadelphia, you know, the charter school movement, I think, has lost a lot of its shine as this new thing that was supposed to reform the education movement and in Philly in the last few years, there's been a big decline in new charters being allowed. Um, a lot of charters are closing because they're also failing. And, you know, I think this is a move now where charters are in decline and, you know, there's a moratorium on on stopping these in the name of this uh, alleged discrimination. And obviously, if there's discrimination going on, that should not happen. But I think what you'll find is that many of these charters are going to be failing and closing for the same reason that they're uh, closing public schools, because charters also are not going to have the resources alone to, you know, heroically overcome the poverty and systemic issues that we're we're talking about. Um, so if you want to, you know, you can frame that as discrimination or not. But I think, you know, on the one hand, public schools are expected through this rhetoric of, you know, failing, they're supposed to close if they fail. And then charters, we shouldn't be surprised if some of the same dynamics are happening. But I think it's a great example of how you know, charters are mobilizing on a real problem. Again, there are deep educational inequalities, especially, um, you know, that are disproportionately Black students, but they're mobilizing sentiment for the wrong solution.
1: Um, and i not sure what you think about that, Kale. Right. I mean, it's, in some ways, it's, the politics has changed so dramatically in the last five or six years. And, you know, I, like many of my friends and comrades would probably put an oversized uh, degree of causality with Bernie and with the Bernie Sanders campaign that I think people, and not just Bernie, of course, because like the teacher strikes that I think more and more people are like, they understand that what really is at stake in, in these fights is what are we prioritizing? Are we prioritizing um, human needs and, and human advancement of like actually helping people, uh, you know, on the one hand, there's just kind of the, the raw reality of like, people need to have the skills in order to, you know, be, you know, be able to be competitive in this world because, you know, that's unfortunately what it is that we, you know, we leave school to enter the job markets. Um, but on the other hand, of course, like there's just like some like human good of like of developing yourself of like of learning and um, and learning for learning's sake and uh, and being in situations where, uh, you know, the priority is kind of creativity and um, and exploration rather than, you know, teaching for a test or something or learning right. for a test. Um, and so people are, are, you know, I think more and more people recognize that, the, you know, it's it's either going to be uh, you know, that kind of model of education or companies that, I mean, that's the fact just charter schools are there as companies, um, existing in markets competing, uh, to maximize profit. And that's, you know, that is going to be the distinction and it has been the distinction and it continues to be in all these different areas of life. And people see that more and more that, you know, uh, sure. Sometimes, you know, you can get, a decent education out of a charter system. But the priority for that company is to maximize a profit. It's to be competitive. And so that's what they're going to prioritize above and beyond, uh, you know, a child's education. And of course, you know, just, you know, for better or worse, you know, the, the fact is, is that, um, or rather, you know, There's obviously a lot of good that's come out of the last, you know, year, year and a half of, um, people becoming more and more, uh, conscious of, of race and of racism. Um, and of course companies who, again, they, their main priority is making a profit are totally fine to, to take that and spin it in in whatever way that they can so that they can, um, you know, push back against the charges that they, you know, they only exist to make a profit. Right. But, yeah. uh,
0: yeah. And I think just, again, misdiagnosing problems, you know, the article, I didn't highlight this, but the article also mentioned the decline in black teachers. And this is something you you are seeing uh, in public school districts across the country. But when you look at the reasons, a lot of times you'll find the reason is that the schools that are being closed for lack of funding are disproportionately in black communities with uh, more veteran black teachers. The new um, standards and the new kind of merit pay system that they're trying to institute based on test scores are disproportionately hurting these veteran teachers, more likely to be black, that have not, you know, been they they were not entering the school district with that framework in mind. Um and, you know, and I think the more we see we're getting the highlights of or the lowlights of how underfunded our school districts are, you know, when I talk to people who are not not necessarily ideologically pro or anti charter, but when I say, like, look, why aren't we not supporting our existing public schools? Like we have schools with forty kids in a classroom and Literally falling apart. Why are we spending money on charters when we have these existing institutions we can improve? And I think that resonates with a lot of people. And, you know, more and more people are just seeing the reality that charters are not actually solving the issue. And I actually substitute taught a lot of the charters mentioned in that article. You know, I saw many of the same things that you would see in a public school. And when I didn't, it was because some of those actually had a lot smaller class sizes, which again begs Mm -hmm. the question why are we not just doing that? in our existing public institutions.
1: Right. And, and of course the, the other irony of this whole thing is that as, you know, charter schools are going to, you know, they are and will increasingly use, you know, racial justice language. Um, those efforts will end up resulting in greater and greater inequities that, uh, it's, it's going to exacerbate both racial and class inequities. Right. Exactly. So, um, actually so i think that's uh i'm gonna bounce out because uh i'm i'm not you you want to see the the real stars of this show right um so uh i'm gonna dip out and bring on i think we have two of our guests um and we're waiting on one more but i'll add her when she joins um but all right paul that you introduce them. yeah sure so uh, yeah i'm really excited we have three we have a stack show three great guests so
0: one of them, uh, Megan Erickson, she is an editor at uh, Jacobin, and author of Class War, the Privatization of Childhood. We also have um, Jay O'Neill, who is a middle school teacher and union activist in Charleston, uh, West Virginia. And she might not be on yet, but uh, soon we hope to have Rebecca Gorelli. Um, oh, there she is. <laughs> She's a science and STEM educator and organizer with Arizona Educators United. So welcome, everyone. Um,
2: hey, thanks for having us. Uh, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, so I wanted to start. I mean, this question may be starting from Megan, but I think everyone feel free to chime in. Um, you know, one of your articles that I reread recently about um, the differences between education system in the Soviet Union and the United States, um, and you, you talk about the vision in the United States is a vision of school being uh, preparing for real life, and you you contrast that within the Soviet Union as school as being real life. Can you kind of talk about what does that difference mean? How do you see that, you know, playing out today in education?
3: Sure. Um, so in the early years of the revolution, um, thousands of schools and nurseries um, were were created in the homes of former aristocrats. Um, libraries, art galleries, museums that have been open only to scholars were made public and heated to get people in the doors. Um, so it was a system that for all of its failings from, through um, financial, through lack of having money, um, it was about accessibility and um, creating democratic citizens and people who really buy into um, this project, um, this political project that, that Bolsheviks were engaged in. Um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting in researching schools for this piece was that rather than um, think about schools as a place where ideological indoctrination would occur, um, uh, Lenin and Krupskaya, who ran the programs um, were very adamant. Um, they read Dewey, who's a, you know, a foundational American progressive educator. Um, and they were adamant that the schools be places where that that were centered around children and their needs. Um, so they incorporated things like hands-on activities, collaborative play, self-expression, student-directed group projects. Um, an American educator at the time who was um, writing a book about uh, schools and and learning around the whole entire world uh, visited the sto- the Soviet Union. And she noticed that preschool kids weren't told what to do by their teachers. They were encouraged to come up with games um, on their own. Um, So independence and collaboration, Um, but also things like um, elementary schoolers there spent a year writing and producing a play a year, like a whole year of of school, um, writing and producing a play around a theme that they chose. Um, One of my favorite examples that this this American teacher noticed was that um, instead of learning about anatomy from a textbook, um, the kids were encouraged to examine each other's skin before and after a run. So that's the kind of like hands on learning that was happening in this place where there was widespread starvation, tuberculosis, um, all of these huge, huge uh, challenges that we don't have in the United States, on, in the wealthiest country in the world, or we shouldn't have. Um, you know, our school should be our priority. Um, people who visited also noticed that teachers who didn't have pencils or, or paper for that day um, would just take the kids out on nature walks or um, go to museums. John Dewey visited pretty famously. Um, many times, and went on like official visits to model schools that were created to show what Soviet schools should look like in the future, Um, and then actual schools that were functioning on the budgets that they had. Um, And he noticed that inside and out, um, children's work was taken seriously and always intended to culminate in authentic participation in life, in in the democracy, democracy that they wanted. Um, or the world that they wanted. Um, in one model school, for example, um, he, he noticed there were some charts on the walls that went um, that planned changes in the community over the course of ten years. Um, so this group of students in this school had been coming up with with challenges and solutions for their particular community from you know early childhood on. Um, through the over the course of ten years together, which I think is pretty amazing, um, and not something ever I've ever witnessed in an American public school. Um, Lev Vygotsky came out of all of this. He's a psychologist who's still read here and and really important to me, and I think a lot of people who um, are teachers today. Um, and he believed that reading and writing should be organized in a way that they are necessary for something. So the idea is like if you show kids how to read and write um, as a tool to shape the world around them, um, it becomes intrinsically motivating to them, which when I'm, you know, (laughs) raising my kids has become um, so apparent to me. It was apparent to me in a classroom as well as a teacher. But I think about how I engage with my I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And even with my one-year-old, I look at what he's interested in and then I kind of like build on that um, because I know that that's what's important to him and that's how he's going to, to learn. Um, and yeah, so so all of these ideas are kind of um, supplanted in American schools in my experience as a teacher by a curriculum that is intended to prepare kids to be future workers um, and gives them really limited Control over not only what they learn and what they think about every day, but even just like their physical bodies. Um, it's a crime the way that recess has just become something of the past. Um, none of the schools I ever worked in in New York City had functioning libraries or um, nurses on site, for example. Um, so it, kids were pretty much confined to their desks doing paperwork, and I think the reason why why I was um, encouraged as a teacher and, and all of the teachers around me were encouraged to kind of get kids writing on paper. Well, I think there's a lot of reasons, but um, one is that it can be documented. So like anyone can come, any supervisor manager can come into the classroom and evaluate you as a teacher and evaluate the students by what is there on the paper. Um, and so that's to me why that has become so much more important um, and so much more prevalent in American schools than, than the hands-on activities that I described in Soviet, in the Soviet Union. <laughs> um, it, it's not, it's just not how people learn. Um, and I think it's really, it's really, um, it just, um, it's felt in, in the experiences of kids and teachers every day um, in, in schools. I mean, it's boring.
0: Are you telling me that not everyone just wants to code? I th- that's what I heard we should be teaching.
3: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there's the whole the whole thing of uh, uh, Silicon Valley people sending their kids then to Waldorf schools where they're not even allowed to look at a computer until they're in high school.
0: Right. And I I mean, I'm not going to name names, but a former school, middle school principal, and he he really did believe in this vision that every kid will become a coder, and that's we, sh- we weren't there yet, but we should move our school in that direction to be training the next generation of coders. Um, it's just absurd. Um, but to kind of circle back what I was talking before you all came on um, about the charter school movement, um, and I'm curious what you all think about this. One thing I've kind of been thinking lately is, you know, I think during the Obama years, one strength of the charter school movement was it was seemingly bipartisan. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you all know that the the main opponents of the Los Angeles Teachers Union, Chicago Teachers Union were Democrats. You had Arnie Duncan in the Obama administration. And I think the situation has kind of changed during the Trump years where, you know, Betsy DeVos has become such an enemy and representative of the Trump administration and an enemy not just of the far left, but even like resistance liberals. Like DeVos is one of the Trump henchwomen that we all hate. Do you think this has affected the school privatization movement to the point where it's no longer as broad, maybe, uh, as it used to be, or in terms of appealing in that bipartisan way? Is it more easily villainized now because of that? I'll let any of you take that.
2: Yeah, I'll I'll jump in. I think it has become more partisan. Um, Here in West Virginia, we kind of just had an onslaught of it the last couple years. And I was talking to some kind of national education people, and they asked, did any Democrats vote for it? And I said, no, none at all. And they were really surprised and saying, you know, this seems to become much more of a partisan thing, a really right-wing Republican thing. You know, we have a lot of Democrats in the state that I would are not real left, right. They're very conservative Democrats, but they've all opposed privatization. It seems like it's just moved over to the right. It got associated with the Voss and that is kind of where it is now. Um, for good or bad.
0: Anyone else have have thoughts on that?
4: Well, this is Arizona, so I have many thoughts (laughs) on that. Uh, But particularly here, you know, it's 100% what Jay said. It's totally partisan. The choice movement is what our governor uh, claims, right? Arizona's number one for choice. And what that looks like, though, is we're also number one for fraud and for siphoning money. um, And we are the testing ground for all the new ideas. Like right now we have micro schools. So if you haven't seen micro schools yet, uh, my own kids district here in uh, Mesa, Arizona, um, tried to get a contract for over $400,000 to take money from the public school district, put it into micro schools, which are basically you get a teacher with a really small pot of kids, right? the whole pot idea. And they were running it through the district. And we actually fought back. We had over 80 public comments on it. And we actually crushed it with the um, Mesa Education Association, Save Our Schools Arizona, and obviously Arizona Educators United. We all joined forces, pushed back. But really, like, they just keep changing tactics and changing tactics. And here, it only comes from one party. The Democrats are totally on our side. They are pro-public education. And then the other side is the one pushing choice.
3: I, I'm in Florida right now, and I agree with that. Um, yeah. Yesterday, the governor signed in like the largest commitment to um, a voucher money uh, to private and parochial schools in the history of the state. Though I also... Um, I, I think, obviously, that doesn't mean that we don't have to continue pushing liberals to the left on education. Like, I... I I think it remains to be seen um how exactly everything's going to play
0: out yeah i I'm not sure how long this biden honeymoon moon is going to last, but I'm not predicting it's going to last very long yeah um and this one i mean for for Jay and Rebecca, I mean you know I was talking earlier about what it's been like teaching um during covid and um uh, can you talk a little bit about you know in your respective school districts you know how has how have you all dealt with covid nineteen like have have teachers and students been forced back into unsafe conditions? How has unions responded to this? You know, What has the experience been like?
2: Oh, man, where to start? Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is
0: a two-hour question. So
2: yeah. I, oh. I mean, I'll just say everything was constantly changing. Like the metrics about whether to go back or not, when it was safe, they just kept moving the goalposts on things, um, which made it kind of difficult to fight. Um, I know our unions here were just, I think they kind of thought, you know, access was power. So they were in some of the early planning meetings for the return to school, but then it turns out that no one really listened to them and they kind of just did what they wanted to do anyway. And I don't really feel like they had much of a backup plan to push back against that. Um, we have been in my school, we've been back in person really full time since January, um, which has been pretty nuts. We've had, I have my students. I also have e-learners. Um, and sometimes I teach them at the same time, which is terrible. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not effective for them. It's not good for me. Um, and it's been rough. We've also had, you know, various quarantine periods and kind of, We've still had in-person schools since then, but we had a lot of kids have to go remote for a couple of weeks because of quarantines it's It's just been a mess this year.
4: Um, ditto <laughs> um I think if I were to add anything on, it's I, I I don't even know where to start, but really, the division that happened, right? how they divided workers was astonishing with putting, I mean, similar to like CTU, right? Like putting back uh, lower grades first. So then we had the preschool teachers pitted against the upper grade teachers versus high school teachers. Right. And so the division was something that one, I didn't see coming. I should have seen it coming. And two, it really made organizing the most difficult thing on the planet because there are some folks who were like, well, I'm safe. And I'm just, I'm not going to worry about my fellow worker, which was really disheartening and demoralizing, hands down, as an organizer, some of the most demoralizing stuff we've been through um, with Arizona Educators United, but the division and then not having solidarity with each other was really, really hard. It was hard. And I think um, we kind of played from an organizing perspective, we had to put out fires this entire year was about up fire down, fire, put out fire. And that was it. There was no, and we kept pushing back and there were some good actors and then bad actors. So we'd put all our forces into the bad actors. Right. And we would try to have as much solidarity as we could down in, you know, different districts. And at one point it just, and then they changed the goal again and then again, and then again, like Jay said. So I just, you couldn't get a grasp on like where people were at and then fatigue with the mass and people not listening to science and then parent groups coming up saying we need our kids back. I mean, it was just insane. I mean, it's just insane. I just, I never want to go through that again.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I, I hear you on the putting out fires part. I mean, that's been one of the most frustrating things for me. I can't tell you how many times in the union we've geared up for this, something we thought was going to be this big fight. And then they wound up not bringing us back when they said they would, you know, but it's just like constantly going from crisis to crisis. Um, and Meg, I don't know, what about from the, as the, from the perspective of a parent um, in, in Florida, what has this whole process been like?
3: Well, I, I actually taught um, in the spring and then went on maternity leave, and it was a mess then. I am not surprised to hear that it's still a mess. Um, I think, so Florida, Florida has um, actually opened the schools and things have been kind of running mostly as normal here. Um, my kids are one in three. So it, it's really not, we're not public school age yet. Um, I, can't, I, re- I can't really speak to to much about that knowledgeably. Um, I do think one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is how a lot, we're, we're really lucky in terms of, you know, that whole idea of teachers' working conditions being, you know, the same as students' learning conditions. And that that's something that we can advocate around for everybody, for, for workers and for students. And I, I just kind of adding on to, to what everyone's saying about the divisions here were really real. Um, parents have real needs. I had real needs as a parent for childcare, um, And that also has to do with the utter lack of child care in this country, which is pretty uh, unique. Um, or compared to other um, countries around the world, but um, but I think, and even even within the workforce, like for for a, a young teacher with not a lot of medical complications, and for a student, the risks were really different than for an older teacher. Um, so yeah, so I think all of those things were something really tough, and and something that we're gonna have to keep uh, thinking about and learning from.
0: And on the point of you know, the difficulty of childcare and obviously the, the complications that arises with parents, do you think in, in Arizona and West Virginia, did the union handle that well um, or make any strides in terms of building alliances with parents and getting some understanding there or, you know, or was there a big division on that front?
4: So what, I'll go first, if that's okay. Um, when you say the union... Like we, we work in different capacities here, right? We have statewide things we do together and then we have local things. And I think it varies by district. We had some local, uh, in general, I think the union could have more and should have done more, um, more cohesively, more um, structured campaigns to push back uh, because We didn't see that. We had them, you know, we saw them working on like big documents with task force and, and what we want to do to move the union forward for the next 10 years, um, which is all great and good things. But at the time we needed some serious pressure and here it really got divided by locals. And so local by local, there were, you know, out I'm, I'm out in the East Valley suburban area. Um, very Mormon, very right-wing, very conservative. And we had a parent coalition here working with the union, right? And I'm a parent in that local. So I helped spearhead that work because that's where my kids go. And I have three kids in public school right now under the age of six. So I'm invested in that relationship and I'm invested in getting people to use their voice. Um, showing up at governing boards. And so we had some of that, but it was local by local. There was no cohesive because everyone was in different spots. So it's really hard to have like unity. So we formed like coalitions, like East Valley Coalition, which is a bunch of locals together, the West Valley Collaborative, which was a bunch of them pushing back on a different side of the city. So it can, it kind of came in little pockets, but, you know, I can only speak of where I was and spent most of my time organizing out here in the East Valley. And we had some parent coalitions where we would go to each other's districts and support each other, show up at governing boards, put on public comments, that kind of thing. But do I think the union could have and should have done more? Absolutely. But I realize that many leaders may not know how to lead in the moment. And that's what it comes down to.
2: Yeah, it was was similar here. We had some locals that were doing a better job than others. Um, Statewide, I do think our unions could have stepped up more and done more. Um, Our caucus had really pushed some alliances with parents and even had a really good return to school plan, but I mean, you guys know you're doing union work with caucuses. It doesn't always get embraced by leadership, Um, put it that way. And one other thing I I wanted to mention that was big here, and I have a feeling, especially in Arizona and Florida, probably was too, just the political divide in the fall made this really rough. Like August and September when school is starting, I mean, you've got people who don't really even think the virus is real or it's not a big deal or something like that. And that was a real challenge early on. It actually got better as the school year went on because people saw the real problems with it and they knew people that were getting COVID. But early on, we had trouble with Unity just, you know, about the facts.
0: Yeah. And, you know, one thing I was, I've was i been worried about even before COVID is about, you know, the growth of like cyber charters and, you know how how they're going to try to automate teaching, and I know something Jane McAlevey's said a lot is you, know, you can't offshore schools and teaching, you can't automate them. And I always just add the yet part because I think they're they're actively working on it. And so you know, do you think? And this is for for everyone. Um, you know, do you think COVID nineteen it has accelerated some of these trends, whether it's cyber charter, cyber schooling, the terror teller, terrorization of of teaching, um, and Also thinking about surveillance and monitoring, do you think, how do you think this might play out after hopefully we get over COVID soon in in education? Don't make me be a teacher and call on someone.
3: (laughs) I mean, I hated Google Classroom before all of this, and I really hate it now. Um, I had colleagues that would literally just like open the laptop for the day Plug all the kids into Google Classroom. They're typing away, they're working on something. The classroom is like completely silent every single day. And that was considered good teaching in that particular school. There's no behavioral issues. That's because nobody's even talking to each other. Like the kids are silent, they're working on a laptop. All the teacher is there for is monitoring that they're not like on porn sites or something. Um, and that troubles me deeply. Um, obviously um, as a teacher, but I think, um, I think this is this, this whole, this issue that you bring up, it's really, really important. And I think it's something that people are going to have to be fighting for a long time going forward. Um, I mean, Bill Gates, Eric Schmidt, these people have all explicitly said that the project for them will be going forward to build on, um, what they've done, which is, which is set people up with Google. You know, I know I have much more, um, facility with all of the programs than I ever did because I didn't, I didn't really use them. Um, as does every teacher and as does every child, that doesn't mean that they're appropriate tools, um, to be using in education. Um, I mean, for me as a teacher and as a parent, the limitation—and I think I think a lot of parents feel this way—the um, limitations of the technology were just. I, I mean, I'd been talking about it theoretically and in the context of of society and like the motivations of these corporations and student privacy, but to really feel, I can't connect with my kids. They can't connect with each other. Those conversations that they have in the hallway that are super important for childhood development aren't happening. And I'm looking at their faces and like week one, everybody's like, we're going to support you. You know, there's that feeling of like, we're together in this, it's a crisis. We're going to overcome it. But by the end of that school year, um, the kids were just depressed. And, and that's even with me. I set up chat rooms where they could hang out and talk about non um, you know, school related things as I think a lot of teachers did. Um, But it's just that lack of face-to-face connection. Um, it sounds so cliche, but to think about like, like more specifically, for example, like as a, as a teacher, I rely on, um, being able to, to talk quietly to a student about an, a challenge that they're having with the material. There was no way to look at any kid's paper and figure it out. Um, to just kind of look over their shoulder and have a soft conversation, not in front of everybody in, in the whole room. And I was teaching fifth graders who that would just humiliate them, um, to, to kind of have that conversation um, as a whole class. And it's, it's just, you know, completely inefficient. Um, so I think, so all, all of what I'm saying is I think that there are more laptops in hands and more, um, more of the uh practical challenges of having people have access to devices and um have knowledge of them that's been solved and i think will will be the platform that gates and and um all of the tech gurus kind of try to build on but i think equally there will be a huge backlash among parents teachers and students um, for whom this experience was really painful Um, and who were robbed of so much social love all year which is which is a big part of what school is about not just reading and writing
2: Rebecca RJ any thoughts on that I mean yeah a couple of things I mean one that I found really interesting was at least here the same people that were pushing us to go back in person and they were saying virtual school is not working. It's not working. Those are also the same people that are pushing virtual education later and like literally signing those bills into law. It was just crazy. Um, the other thought I had thinking about this, cause I've used a lot of these programs obviously this year and their, their entire like ecosystems, you know, in and of themselves, like you have to have the login for this certain app or program and everything a student does is is within that you know it's like like I use Spotify now for music do I have any of that music on my own no it's all in Spotify and if I'm not in Spotify like tough and that's the way a lot of these apps are now and so it's just kind of like more and more control more and more cost because districts have to buy access to all these different things and it's just it's no longer just doing a document and uploading it somewhere. It's like its own separate thing, which is scary um, and expensive going forward. Yeah,
3: and kids and parents have to keep track of those passwords. Like I yeah. had, I had colleagues who were like, "My student hasn't emailed me," and I'm like, "That's because they don't email. Like they don't know how to write an email. They text each other."
1: Right.
4: Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess I could add maybe two things that weren't really touched upon is like so I'm not a classroom teacher anymore I'm actually a science specialist Uh, I've become a digital specialist now um, which is really great for organizing PS I know lots of things now (laughs) it's really helped my work but so I support teachers uh implementing science and um I was a I'm a Google certified teacher and all that means is I'm really good at using the platform and clicking buttons and I know how to do things super fast right But I like that sort of thing. As a science educator, there are ways that I can use it to collaborate, to talk, for productive talk discussions, to use talk moves in a Jamboard. There are really great tools that I think we're going to hold on to and we're going to keep just because kids like it. Um, Like Jamboard. I use Jamboard all the time. Um, But then when you get down to the other, like the app-based things, I've seen a lot of negative things. For example, Florida Virtual, since you're in Florida, let's talk about Florida Virtual for a minute. It's a terrible program. It's just terrible. And it doesn't, it's not even in the essence of the science standard. So I looked at the science one. It is not even, um, it has a completely different approach than the way we're supposed to be teaching. But now districts are starting to use them, not only for this year, just to get by, but now we're going to have a virtual track for next year for people who still might want that. And now that's going to be two years worth of something that is not quality and they purchased it, they had to buy it for one or two years, and now they're pushing it out. And that's terrifying. Um, and also with data mining, I know you guys have seen uh, Lois Miners article about data mining and privacy and all of that. And that's a whole nother bag, right? Like, how are people going to use this data? And what are they going to do with it? And I think what it comes back to for me is like who's pushing which narrative, right? Like, I always try to pay attention to the narratives, like the learning loss narrative, which we've been trying to push back very much so and switch to asset based thinking, relying on student strengths and cultures and values as strengths rather than this idea that standards are not these social constructs that we have created. with our best intentions for kids to learn something in a a, a finite amount of time, which we know that's not how people learn. And so I I always watch the narratives and think of, man, we got to push back because this learning loss narrative is the one driving the ed tech tools and the ed tech programs and the the apps. And that's what we need to watch. Who is really behind the learning loss narrative? Because that's, that's, that's going to cause some issues. But I think there are some good things about what we've learned about this year and how to collaborate online and using different tools that kids can use on an iPad or, a, you know, a computer, a desktop. But I do think, like, the love of learning and being in that space with one another and the connections we make is something that will never be automated. And the narrative that goes with that is what the right has been pushing. Oh, kids need to be back in school for mental health. Well, give us counselors. Give us funding. Give us this. Oh, they need it for, okay, lower class size. I'm with you. Let's use this narrative and let's, let's build on it. So I think there's opportunity here also. And thinking of all of us across the nation and how we build back against narratives and use them to really get to what we need. I think we, there's, there's opportunity there. That's all I'm saying.
0: Yeah. The, the mental health narrative, I mean, drove me crazy because I mean, we have high schools where it's like, I, I a counselor's ratio is like 400 to 1, you know, in terms of the students. And sorry, Megan, I might have first 1900
4: cut you off. to 1 where I was teaching in West Phoenix. 1900 to 1. We shared one counselor for two campuses, primary, and then where I taught in the middle school, I taught in the 4th through 8th. So for our whole entire campus, one.
0: It's unbelievable. <laughs> so, yes so it I, is. Megan, did I cut you off? <laughs>
3: Yeah, I think I, think I my uh, connection might have dropped. Um, I was just saying, I, I think it's pushing for smaller class sizes is critical here. And I actually just read recently, so this whole learning loss thing, even by the standards of like the McKinsey um, people, it's only like a month or two of learning that they've shown through standardized testing is lost. Um, whereas there are studies showing that several months are gained, um, through smaller classes. And that's not even the metric that I would use to assess a quality education, but even by their own metrics, it's really pretty, a false, a self-evidently false narrative. Um, I also think I felt that there should be more things like having classes outside to, to expand recess time. And, um, yeah, I, I really think that that there's, I hold education, but in a way that is um, that is child centered and, and teacher centered and, hmm. and affirms the values that we want to see in education, as opposed to Eric Schmidt taking everything over and telling us what how to do it.
0: Right. And Rebecca, I'm, I'm glad you made. I mean, your first point about the. Because I was going to say the, these programs, you can just see it now. They're going to be rolled out again for next year. You know, now that they have them, you know they're going to want all these te- new tech programs introduced. And I think this summer, professional developments are not going to be pleasant. That's that's <laughs> what I'm predicting. I mean, they never really are, but I think it's going to be especially bad, bad now. Um, and so, you know, I think there's been this uh, a trope for a long time about education. You know, education is the key to success. It is the ticket out of poverty, you know, I think this is something that's been there for a long time. And I always feel kind of strange pushing back against that because I deeply love public education. I think it is key to, if you define success as being a well-rounded human being, but I think, you know, you could have a great school, but if in your area, the economy is not producing living wage jobs, it's actually not a ticket out of poverty. Um, Do you think, you know, it's not about educating your way to success. Um, Do you think, you know, the last few years of you know political change, the the growth of the left, plus this pandemic. Do you think that it's changed that narrative at all, or are people kind of doubling down on this idea that well, everything can be solved through education? Just educate your way to the top. Has that changed at all, or has this stayed the same?
2: I mean i I would love to tell you it's changed, but I don't. I'm not seeing it here. Unfortunately, mm. it's it's the same old thing rolled out and I mean that that's why they want to reopen schools right because you know improving kids futures and, and all those things um yeah I don't know I want to be more positive but I'm not seeing any change
4: um I think it depends on where you're at and what you're listening to and seeing right so like in lefty spaces I do see that right with the um, the, the heightened awareness and consciousness of, you know, getting that degree and then having the student debt that's out there now. Right. So like it's our path to debt. It's not our path to actual American dream success that doesn't exist anymore. And I think that narrative is getting out there. Right. Like both through Bernie. God love Bernie. And, you know, all the work he's doing. And then when it comes like here in this space, in this very red space, um, when we talk about unemployment, and you know, that narrative right now, and people are like, oh, you, you don't want to work. And, you know, it's, it's finally being revealed, like, hey, those wages are not livable wages. And so like, I see those conversations, but I never see it tied back to like public education. You know, so I like see this narrative, but I don't see a correlation between like we need public schools to, you know, push, boost our education to get us to the next thing. When people are like, yo, man, I don't want to get a degree because I don't want to end up in debt for the rest of my life, not be able to afford a house. That's what I hear more of. Right. So I don't know. Noticings.
3: I think that's a really big change, though, because that the idea, obviously, the great equalizer idea is something that's pretty entrenched in the foundations of our schools. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's I think it's really hard to quantify, but I do think there's a difference between the rhetoric that's being used by Biden and those around him um, from you know, Obama calling schools the best anti-poverty program in the world. I, I'm not sure I've heard that kind of uh, language used. Um, not that it won't be. Like I said, I think I think we're we're pretty early on. Um, yeah, but I, I do think that um, what what you just mentioned is is really kind of a beginning of a huge change. Mm-hmm
0: sometimes when I'm feeling particularly morbid, I'll I'll take a look at the salaries of blue collar union workers in my area that don't require a college degree. And I'm like, I'm such a sucker. Like, why, why did I do that again? Um, And so for the uh, next question, um, so Jane and Rebecca, you all were leaders in the red Red, Fred teacher strike wave. And I think it's kind of hard to believe, but that was three years ago, which I don't know if that feels like a long time ago or a short time ago, but um, and you know, it's, you can't, at least for me personally, overstate like how much of a ray of hope that, um, that, that strike movement was. And I think it really changed a lot of aspects of, of politics. So first, I mean, can you both kind of just remind people like what happened, um, in your states, like how many teachers went on strike? What, what did you all win? And then, and then I think, what is the state of things now? Like, how is that movement reverberated? Um, have teacher, I mean... Covid's kind of changed the game, but even before Covid, like, have teachers been able to use that to start going on the offensive in some ways, or is it more still in the mode of fending off attacks? And and I guess reflections of now that it's a few years away, like, just how how would you assess that that overall movement? Sorry, that's a lot, but.
4: <laughs> well, since I copied Jay, he should go first.
2: Oh, uh, um, geez. Yeah, so, yeah, Paul, I three years ago, it, it in some ways, it seems like it was hardly any time. In other ways, it seems like it was ages ago with everything that's happened. But um, yeah, I mean, here in West Virginia, we um, ended up having a statewide teacher and education service personnel strike in February of 2018. Um and we kind of call it you might have heard it called 55 Strong or 55 United because we have 55 countywide school districts here. And we were on strike for nine days. Um, ours really it started off centered around our healthcare. care. Um, we have kind of a state sponsored healthcare plan here that had just been getting cut year after year after year. And it was going to have some really egregious cuts go through. And that's kind of what pushed everyone into striking. Um, you know, strikes are illegal in West Virginia. Um, And so that was kind of a big step, but we had such good unity um, from both teachers and service workers at schools and across the state that it, it, you know, illegality didn't really matter um, because we had such power with everybody standing together. Um, So we were on strike for nine days and about halfway, well, halfway through that on the fourth day was when we were told to go back a couple days later and a deal had been struck and the rank and file kind of said, wait, what? You didn't, you didn't ask me. Um, No, that's not the deal. And so we ended up staying for out for nine days. Total um, ended up getting a 5% raise both for teachers and for all state employees. So even people who didn't go on strike with us um, got paid. I think you were asking numbers. I think it was about 32,000 people were on strike um throughout because it shut down every district in the entire state and every kind of employee for that district um yeah, it was a it was a really powerful, kind of amazing time and um, I don't know I never you know in the moment here we weren't thinking about kind of sparking a movement that would go across the country We were really just thinking about saving our healthcare, really. really. Um, but it spread after that, and it was amazing to see. And I loved watching, you know, Kentucky, Oklahoma, Arizona, what was going on there. And I was, honestly, I was really impressed by Arizona because they had, in my opinion, much less of a union infrastructure to start with. And they kind of created their own and just really did something powerful. Um, So, yeah, that's my segue to you, Rebecca.
4: (laughs) Well, we did borrow a few of your tricks, P.S., so thanks for going first. Um, So here, um, and just for context, I moved here in 2017, July of 2017. And so when you think of, like, the mood and the tone here when when I got here, when I moved here, it had already been, like, A decade of demoralization, right? Like there was just this feeling, even when I walked on my campus of just like, well, that's the way it is. We just, we don't ruffle the waves. we just don't, you know, and I was like, what about this? Like, what about this? And everyone's like, no, 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 you you don't say things. I was like, what? I'm, I came from Chicago Teachers Union. I have a different view. Okay. Okay. And what I realized is the demoralization was real. The union busting was very real, even in my district, which was thankfully one of the most progressive districts. Um, And I had full support of my superintendent. Um, He'd pop into my classroom and say, keep going. What do you need? You know, just super supportive. Um, And that wasn't always the case. There was a lot of union busting. And if you're even part of the union, you may be blacklisted or called out or, you know, even fired. And so there, there was just tone here, right? Just really not worker friendly, not union friendly. And then when you look at the education statistics, we're dead last, bottom of the barrel for all, all of the statistics, per pupil funding, salary for both elementary and high school, counselor ratio. I explained that already. Our average is 900 to 1% the you know recommended is 250 to 1 so we were 903 to 1 um and class size we have the highest classes in this class sizes in the nation i had to teach science with 34 kids in the room i had never done that before i always had classes of like 25 in chicago so i it, it was just as someone who had just come into this space it was the worst working conditions i personally had experienced in by the time i got here i was what 13 years in education already And so think of working conditions aside, what goes on at the legislature was intentional and aggressive defunding of public education. We are number one for charters, number one for vouchers, ESAs, STOs, you name it. If it's an ALEC copycat model legislation, it's here and this is the playground, right? They test all those uh, model legislation here. And so what that happened is there, there's the funding formula here is different and that's part of the puzzle, but why were teachers so demoralized was really the salary, right? Last in the nation. And over since 2008, they had cut funding. they had cut over a billion dollars in funding so that people's net pay, even though insurance was going up, you know, retirement was going up, they were taking home less money and less money every year. And the cycle just continued to the point where paychecks were $900 biweekly. And so, Um, What was the trigger, though? The trigger that led, besides West Virginia as a catalyst, the trigger was um, our legislative session starts in January every year. The governor said he was going to give educators a 2% raise, and that's it. And the year prior in 2017, there were a couple Republican legislators that said, oh, teachers are overpaid. They have boats. And I mean, the means of the boats and everything was just unbelievable, just like total, total mockery. It was just disgusting. And so people were angry about those boat comments the year before, thinking teachers have enough money to actually buy a boat. And then the 2% raise. So while the 2% raise came out, West Virginia was happening, right? So think January, okay, February, then little Kentucky, Oklahoma. And so by March, people here, you could just feel it we're just feeling like we have to do something. Why aren't we doing this? You know, and I had that feeling too. And I ended up connecting with Jay O'Neill on the Badass Teachers Association page. um, When Lois Weiner posted, you know, what state's going to be next? She posted an article about West Virginia and I was like, I wish it was AZ sigh and Jay O'Neill swoops in and he goes, you can do it. Dan DiMaggio (laughs) from labor notes comes in and says, you can do it. Here's some resources. Read this book from Chicago. And I was like, Hey, Dan, I'm from Chicago. (laughs) I think he was just blown away. So anyway, what I'm saying is it was so demoralized that it wasn't about firing people up. The issues were already widely and deeply felt. It was more about how do you take that and manifest it and mold it into like this movement that we built. And we did it very strategically. We built our own infrastructure outside of the union in a grassroots style. We built a network, uh, both online and in person. So we had a combination of those things and we built our five demands and those five demands were really a 20% raise. Um, no new tax cuts (sighs) putting funding back to 2008 levels, basically give us a billion dollars. Um, and then salary increases, competitive wages for everybody, just like West Virginia, right? That whole wall-to-wall concept. Give you know competitive wages for all our brothers and sisters, like the um, certified and classified. And so, we built this movement. We asked people to volunteer. We called them liaisons. Yep, and ended up we built an eight-week escalating plan, and we ended up with over two thousand volunteer liaisons, which functioned as site reps who would map their workplaces, we would give them tasks, actions, uh, feedback tools, structure tests, all those things. And um, we had people positioned in over 1,200 schools, and that's how we built power. That's how we built that power and ended up there eight weeks later. And so how many people? Well, by the time, so when you think of the numbers, only one third, about one-third, between 25 and 30% of educators, there's 60,000 here, were dues-paying members. So that's about, you know, 30,000 people, 20,000 people. So one third of 60 were dues-paying. The other two thirds were not dues-paying members, yet we plugged them into structures like labor formations that weren't there before. And we brought them into the movement and said, we need you to do this. And so when all is said and done, there were 57,000 people who were both union and non-union. That's a really big thing. I don't think a lot of people realize that that took a strike authorization vote. So we shut down almost every, I think there were just a pocket full of um, districts that did not go on strike. Um, We had 854,000 students, I think is the number in the 800,000 that were out of school. Um, And so it was a, a very massive, um, you know, massive labor action and our wins, we ended up getting a 20% raise over three years. It was called the 20 by 20 uh, 2020 plan, but it came with strings attached, of course, where it only went to teachers of record. So homeroom teachers. So if I'm a music teacher, PE, I don't have a homeroom. Guess what? They divided us. They made us share the pot with everybody else. And of course we're going to do it. And most districts shared the pot. So depending on which district you were in, some folks did get a 20% raise, Um, But that is not very common and did not happen everywhere. Um, And so another major win is it came out to be about $434 million into the budget that year. So thank you, West Virginia.
0: (laughs) The way you uh, described how that started, kind of sounded like a superhero movie. So (laughs) any uh, lefty filmmakers will have to make that. Um, And to to follow up with you, I mean, because obviously funding is so critical here. So you... Rebecca, we're we're part of an effort for um, a successful ballot initiative, Proposition 208 in Arizona, which taxed the rich to fund public education. Um, Can you just, I mean, talk a little bit about that um, and uh, what kind of role do you see for progressive revenue in saving public education?
4: Well, yeah. So what was great about our infrastructure that we built is we used it, right? We pivoted right to a ballot initiative. And they knocked it down in 2018, but we still had infrastructure. We still had relationships with, you know, coalitions and all the, all the things. And that was good because we still activate that, you know, now. And so even in a pandemic, uh, we got over 437,000 signatures for this initiative to tax the 1%. And so we're, we're just going back to the way it was, Right. When you think of the tax cuts and the tax cuts and the tax cuts, like the pie gets smaller and smaller and smaller, right? So the only way you could ever fund education is by making the pie bigger, right? Basic budget here. And so a sales tax, um, that had been put into place a couple years prior. There was a different prop, And so there's been like various props over time. There was Prop 301, which you know led to our evaluations and test scores, and would get us an extra boost. Um, And then there was a a, a penny sales tax kind of thing. And what we know is those kinds of taxes are regressive, and they affect the lower income people more. So when you pull around things like that, you realize taxing the rich is really popular. So you go with it. And so we miraculously, in the middle of a pandemic, won right? 52 to 48. It was incredible. And now they're trying to take it away. It's in court right now. And the legislature, as I wrote in that article with uh, Ben Fong, a credible activist here, is, you know, we can do all these progressive funding things, right? And it's great, because this is the way to do it. Uh, We're righting the wrong. Back in the day, that percentage for wealthy folks was actually higher, right? And it's been lowered and lowered and lowered over time. So we're, we're really just going back to the way it was. And um, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. So like, you may get these things passed like we are right now. But the lead, you know, there's ways to combat it. And the the legislature is now building out a new tax code for these one percenters to try to block that money from coming. I mean, it's just I, I feel like I can't make this stuff up. Right. And that's just the way it is. But we all have to try because it is popular and it is the way to grow the pie. We're not going to fund education unless we grow the pie. That's it. You can't. So it has to be done. Yeah,
0: definitely. Um, and everyone should check out the article she wrote with Ben Fine. I know they're posting it in the live chat. So definitely make sure you read that. Um, kind of comparing what happened there in California with a similar measure that lost uh, narrowly. Um, so I think for the last question, I'll kind of end on a kind of a corny, hopeful question. Maybe I'll start with you, Megan. Um, you know, how would you lay out if we're in a social society, what would education look like to you?
3: I love corny questions <laughs> with hope. Um, uh, I think, well, actually going back to what we were talking about with the Soviet Union um, schools early on, you know, in the the early part, the early 20s. Um, what strikes me about those schools? So when um, when budgets were cut, and I mean, because the only money that existed um, was to was was going towards um, supplying people's fundamental basic needs, um, parents banded together, and um, they had felt so invested in those schools that they continued running them as educational institutions, not just as like food. Pickup um, places, which is what they were going to be. Um, They bought supplies. um, And likewise, um, there's a a system of schools in um, uh, northern Italy in the Emilia Romagna province called the Reggio Emilia schools. Um, And these are schools that um, arose from literally the rubble of World War II. All of the schools in the whole Region were um, decimated, and they were kind of started Parents um, and teachers were kind of starting from scratch, Um, and probably not shockingly, the curriculum is really similar um, to the to the Soviet schools I described, and to to not incidentally, a lot of the private schools here in the United States. Um, Again, like real life problem solving, um, project based learning, the spaces that kids are in are beautiful. Um, and I, that's something I, I think about every day as a teacher is like, like my first year of teaching, I like tripped and injured myself on literally crumbling parts of the building. Um, my kids referred to the food that they ate as trash. And these are like fifth graders talking about, uh, chicken nuggets that they're being served. And what is it like to go to school every day and to be fed trash and to exist in these buildings that are literally crumbling? Um, but but the Reggio Emilia schools are funded. They're part of the civic culture, um, and um, they actually have the the parents there today, um, and the teachers actually have places in, in like as policy advisors as part of the um, the government, the the local government. Um, so they get a lot of financial support because they're really um, important to people because they. Um, they draw on the knowledge of parents and of children, um, which I think is really the most fundamentally important thing to do in schools um, you know teachers are just partners in kids learning um, not would not to to belittle that it's really important but um but yeah, I think putting putting children as as part of the the central part of education um Social emotional learning, which is going to become even more important than it's ever been, um, after COVID, um, we're going to need more and more counselors um, and more and more health professionals, and you know, not this fake austerity that's being um, impl- implemented now. Um, so I think just the bottom line for me is like, what would a socialist education look like? It would be child centered. It would be about um documenting kids learning um through um through actually like like this happens in Reggio Amelia through actually like keeping artifacts of work and looking at their growth um and uh assessing their projects and, and how they exist in the world um as opposed to like having them fill out a lot of standardized test. Um again project-based learning work that is authentic and meaningful and respected Um, for what it is, and not for preparation for college or um, the jobs of the future. That's not technical training. Um, What I think is really profound about the Soviet schools that I mentioned earlier is that we're talking about a society that was like rapidly industrializing, but they insisted that schools were places um, where children learn together in collaboration and, and pursue work that is meaningful to them, and not prepare for for uh the factory floor um and i think that that values both the kids perspective and their worlds and the workers having control over their own um technical training which then goes on in the workplace and not in schools um yeah
0: all right uh jay have any thoughts
2: I mean, I think they'd be well funded. I mean, just I'll just start with that. I, you know, like Megan was talking about, I mean, take school food, right? Like it is it's terrible, Um, you know, and crumbling buildings. I mean, I'm having to put two box fans in my windows every morning. I put them in, you know, just to have better ventilation because of COVID. Like, I think in a real socialist society and in a place of really valued education, none of this would be an issue. You wouldn't have 900 to one, you know, counselor to student ratios. You'd have a counselor for every grade level. You know, you'd have, I don't have a full-time nurse in my school. This year during COVID, do not have a full-time nurse. I mean, all of that stuff would be huge. And I think we could really start to implement different kinds of learning in the classroom if we had the resources we need, you know, I I think sometimes about I teach middle school, so I deal with discipline a lot. And I think sometimes about discipline issues that how things could be taken care of so differently if we had more resources to help rather than just, you know, sending a kid to the principal's office or whatever. If we had more intervention, more social workers, more people to really look after all aspects of their lives, I think so much more learning could go on within the school building um but right now you know we're making do with so little um so i guess if i could sum it up just yeah my vision just i'm just going to start at the basics just more funding let's let's actually if we believe that schools are the great equalizers like you know obama and everybody likes to talk about then let's put money towards that and let's actually support it
0: Yeah. Every year I, I, I have an assignment where students list five demands for education and the strategy for getting them. And school lunch is always at the top, always, always at the top. Um, uh, so Rebecca, I think you'll get the last words.
4: Um, you know, Megan, I, I sit here and I connect with everything you say because my own children go to Montessori and I am a constructivist educator. Um, I believe fully, I'm very familiar with Reggio Emilia, because when I was looking for schools for my own children to go to, that was something I, I came upon. And so when, like when, I, and I'm a science educator, I'm a hands-on, it, not just inquiry, I'm not just asking you to look at something in direct observations and go from there. It's constructivist. I construct my knowledge, right? And, and I'm going to do the thinking and apply it and maybe use some place-based phenomena, right? That's a big thing in science these days where we study the things and the cultures and the values and we apply things we learn through this science, um, you know, approach, this three-dimensional approach to instruction, which is the new thing with the new standards that exist across the nation. And it is powerful to have students really collaborate work together work on projects work on these things figure out the world around us instead of having front-loading direct instruction um where kids discover inquire we layer in vocabulary as needing so for me like in my ideal world and like where I seek for my my own children to go is an approach to education that is that way where they are you know. able to choose what they want to, you know, study and look at work with others, then teach others. And it's really just more of a community based culture, where we think about place based phenomena, and how what we view in our cultures and values has a place in our minds and how we think about science. Um, So like, I'm a science person. So like, that's how I think, but none of that will happen unless we get educators to move away from teaching to the test. And the way you do that is by getting rid of the tests and providing actual instruction down to the pre-service level of like, this front-loading gradual release of responsibility, I do, you do, we do garbage, is not how people learn. There's literally a book called How People Learn that describes the constructivist approach and how we're doing it wrong. And so I think we all need to step back and say, get rid of this testing stuff. Yes, school food and the culture and the buildings and the funding is all important. But until we as educators look at education as something different than the way we learned, maybe, you know, those of us who've been in here for a while, it's not about me front loading you receiving that information and regurgitating it back. Why are we doing this? This is not how we learn. And For me, the ideal situation would be shifting the entire culture of teaching to something that is more constructivist and follows those same principles and ideas that Megan was describing. That would be ideal for me. Can I
3: just say one more thing Is there time?
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh,
3: Okay. So um, my first year of teaching, I had all of these values, but I totally taught to the test because I was afraid and I had no other experience of how to do anything else. And there were no um, people, no mentors to look to. So I agree. The word culture that you use, the whole culture of teaching needs to change. But also, um, I think, you know, if you've been looking at those uh, Reggio Emilia programs, that whole idea was transferred over to the United States, but they cost like $30,000 here. You know, so so we can do the things, but we really need the money to fund it. And it's really, really hard to do it on an individual level in an individual classroom. I mean, I think in the past few years, um, I've gotten much, much closer to being able to teach to my values um, and in that constructivist way. But it is so difficult to do it without a whole community of people to mentor Um and, and to, to, to work together towards it. It's, it's, it's a huge undertaking. I think the most important one.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's a great place to end it. So, um, Rebecca, Megan, Jay, thank you so much for coming on. Um, this was great. Um, and I hope uh, we can have you back again soon.
3: Thanks for having us. It was great being on
4: with you guys. Thank you. Good to yep. see you guys.
2: Yeah, it was great. Thank you. All right.
1: Um, all right. So young kale, poster kale, some, there's some new heroes for all of you that are. are, Yeah. You just Um, need more people in your life to, to admire. We just gave you three more. (laughs) Right. Um, no, they, they're all fantastic, incredible people. Um, and, uh, have, you know, done a, a wonderful service both in organizing and in writing and, uh, helping us, you know, try to be in a better world than when we are right now. So, um, Thank you to, to them as educators and organizers and writers. Um, and it, but... it was just great also to um, to relive the
0: Red for Red days. You know, if you get depressed, just think about that. Because um, oh, yeah, I mean, it's easy to forget just like how big of a deal that was and how electrifying, especially as a teacher when it was happening, how electrifying it was. Um, and you know, they did win a lot. You know, they didn't win everything, mm-hmm. but it you know it was a, it was a huge deal.
1: Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's really, I mean, this is, this is what the, what we keep coming back to when we try to like understand what does it mean for workers to have power? Like it was the most illustrative example of that in, in recent history of, of these workers across the state, uh, in, in a number of states banding together and, and successfully getting, uh, the, you know, the parents and, and the students involved in those efforts, um and so again, I think it's something that it provides us a great model. Mm-hmm. Um but as far as learning from labor history and right. and labor struggle, uh we got one more thing for you before we sign off, which is hashtag laborpal. So uh Paul Prescott, our wonderful host, uh he answers questions that you have about labor history, labor organizing, Uh, labor practices, you know, what's going on in your workplace, you don't really understand it fully. Well, Paul has an answer for you. So Paul is going to answer one of those questions tonight, actually. But um, if you want uh, your question to be answered on all things labor and work related, please write something either in the live chat or in the comment section, or on Twitter, or mail it to us. I don't know how you're going to get it to us. But in some way, just make sure you have hashtag Labor Paul. I do support the post
0: office, so I'm fine
1: with yeah. mailing it. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, absolutely. Give them a, a couple extra stamps. Oh yeah. Um <laughs> But uh, we we do have a question prepared uh, for tonight, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna read it and then Paul will respond. Um so the question that was sent to us from Matthew on YouTube is Labor Paul, if the Pro Act doesn't pass, what other sorts of legislation should we be fighting for? Should we focus on state-level versions of the PRO Act? So, you know, when it it comes to laws that make it easier to organize,
0: I'm actually not aware of many state-level proposals. And I think, I mean, it's plausible that you could take different aspects of the PRO Act because there's so much in there and they could be broken off separately and fought for at the state level. But, you know, there's also legislation that I think may not deal with new organizing specifically, but are things that would benefit unions and working people generally. And I think it's a little complicated because different unions often have different legislative priorities that are specific to their unions. So, for example, many you know nurses' unions, their priority legislation is safe patient to nurse ratios. Um, you know, you have unions like United Food and Commercial Workers in Pennsylvania. They represent um, state liquor store workers, so their priority is keeping them from being privatized. Um, but one thing I think we need to be watching out for are State level right to work bills for private sector unions. So, right to work is when unions are able to, uh, workers are able to opt out of paying union dues, but the union still has to represent them. And this is a way to drain the union of uh, financial and political resources. And so, the public sector is already right to work at the federal level. That was already done um, by the Supreme Court. So, they're looking at the private sector um, next. And so, you know, the right wing is very strong in many states at the state level. And we shouldn't forget that, you know, the Democratic Party under Obama, that was a big failing that they had throughout the Obama years. They lost many state houses, state legislatures. Um, And so they're aggressively pushing these bills, um, which are sometimes deceptively called paycheck protection bills. They're very good at naming these bills, things that sound good. And so actually in Montana in March, um, a broad coalition of unions organized to defeat a private sector right to work bill. And actually this month unions in Florida defeated a similar bill that targeted their public sector. But I think these bills are coming to every state and they can be defeated and they need to be. And I think, you know, leftists, whether through groups like DSA or, or other organizations can be a part of that coalition, even if you're not in a union to help defeat those bills. And I think there's also legislation that's geared towards um, non-union workers. Um, so a few, a few years ago in Philadelphia, a uh, bill called the Fair Workweek Bill was passed that requires um, retail, retail employers to provide their workers with predictable schedules because most, many retail workers, you know, they don't know their schedule from day to day. Um, there's also just cause legislation, and a lot of times that's one on the municipal level. I think it could also be one on the state level that makes it harder for employers to fire people just for any reason. And again, this more applies to non-union workers, because if you're unionized workers, there's usually a due process system set up to prevent that. Um, So I think what legislation you focus on may depend on what unions in your area are working on or what is a big issue in your area. But I think, you know, even if the PRO Act does not pass this time around, we need to keep that front and center at the federal level. We need to keep, we should see this as a similar way as as we're fighting for Medicare for all. We know we're not going to pass it this year, but we need to keep that front and center and keep on pressuring uh, lawmakers on it. And I think we should think about it this way, like campaigning for the pro act could set up an interesting primary challenge for a left candidate, because one thing we've seen with a lot of these new left candidates, and I'm not even saying this to criticize them in any way, is that a lot of them have come without much support of organized labor. And just think about if you are pressuring a Congress uh, person in a certain area and are not budging on the pro act, you know, this could set up a left candidate who has the backing of labor that has worked seriously on this campaign to do a primary challenge and introduce a new dynamic of a, you know, a real leftist campaigning who has organized labor support from the beginning. Um, but, Kay, I don't know if you have thoughts on other other labor law that we should be looking at.
1: Yeah, well, I, I mean, so I think with the just to start with the PRO Act, I mean, I, I think it's a, an incredible first step. Um, as far as the left kind of being reoriented towards labor and the labor movement that like you're saying, I I, the point you just made about like, it could be um, you know, kind of raw matter to, to push for a left challenge or left campaign uh, I think is exactly right. That um, the pro act like Medicare for all uh, is like the perfect political priority, the perfect political policy that we can use in our, in our efforts to, you know, draw really clear distinctions between, um, you know, those who are, uh, pro labor and those who are, uh, not friends of labor who are actively trying to destroy, uh, labor organizing and and labor unions. Um, so I, I, think it's, it's, it's going to be useful in the, in the future, you know, moving forward to, um, you know, regardless of what the actual uh, timeline is with its passage to, um, for the left to kind of stay focused on something like the PRO Act um, and, and to see how far that gets us. that I think it, it, this is um, a really useful means of uh, of drawing those battle lines and of kind of bringing people to our side, um, you know, in, in our fights. At the state level, I do want to mention, because um, I'm in New York State, and we have something called uh, the Taylor Law that was put into law in 1967, kind of uh, at the the back end of the rise of public sector unions across the country and especially in New York New York State has um, one of the highest rates of unionization and it's largely due to the public sector here uh, but the Taylor law uh, makes it so that public sector unions are not legally allowed to strike um, effectively that um, you know like what's happened in uh, West Virginia and in Arizona and elsewhere I mean Workers could potentially strike illegally, and you know, and then there's this, you know, whether or not they're able to get away with it, you know, has certain kind of. Um, it's dependent on, on larger social circumstances, but uh, it's just one more massive barrier that um, basically tells public sector union workers, don't even try it. You're not going to win. It's not worth your time, and not worth your energy, not worth your money to, uh, to put yourself out on the line and fight for a better future, uh, because, you know, the law's against you to right. begin with. So and, hmm.
0: I was going to say, I think, I don't know the nitty gritty of that history, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was in response to, um, there was this really big disruptive transit strike in New York city in 1966. Um, hmm. so I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was kind of to te- teach them a lesson and prevent something like that from happening again.
1: I, that would, yes, I think it was, it was applied. Okay. Well, so, um, the first time it was really applied, I believe, um, was in 1980 against the transit workers. Mm -hmm. Um, although, uh, it's also connected to, um, so again, it was passed in 67, but then there was the, uh, Ocean Hill Brownsville strike in 68. Um, I mean, so it's, it hasn't stopped workers from striking in the past, um but it has of course been just one more wow. barrier that yeah. um again it it's kind of a means of just deterring people from from even considering the possibility of going out on strike. I mean this was actually I think a good example of like how to effectively wield this issue um actually was in twenty eighteen um when the left's candidate for governor in New York State was Cynthia Nixon. Uh, she came out as a democratic socialist. She, when she was on the debate stage with Andrew Cuomo, um, they sparred on this question of the repealing the Taylor law. Um, And Cynthia said very forcefully, like if I'm governor, we are repealing the Taylor law. And that's something that someone like Andrew Cuomo, who is such a slimy politician who, you know, they'll they'll make all these gestures to being a progressive. um, But you know, his hands are tied because uh you know the republican um controlled state senate which he helped kind of create in the first place um you know he would be so progressive if only for these other things um he can't ever come out in favor of repealing the taylor law right. and so it just it's so important to have these um very particular political questions that uh that the left should be running on and should be forceful about and saying this is how we're going to actively change people's lives materially. This is how we're going to change their lives, um, in a way that, uh, standard corporate politicians can't. Um, so I, I think, I think that's, I totally agree with what you're saying. I mean, it really, it has to be some combination of pushing for the, um, the pro act as far as we can, and then finding these fights that are somewhat kind of in the yeah. same spirit of, uh, the, right. of the pro act at the local level. And, you know, and, when- I mean, maybe I'll end with this. Like, what's kind of interesting about
0: labor law historically, and, and I don't even know what we do with this information, is that historically, it's come about through these, like, mass waves. And, and, and generally, how organized labor has grown is just these, like, huge spurts. It's rarely been incrementally, you know. And I always say that, like, for years, public sector workers, it was illegal to join a union and illegal to strike. And they did it by just striking and breaking the law. And then they were like, okay, Fine. Uh, you can be in the union and you can strike, and so it just raises an interesting dilemma. Of and I'm I'm not saying this to say we should not be lobbying for the pro act, but often these breakthroughs in labor law come through these very kind of rare, explosive situations, and it, it's kind of hard to to imagine how do you plan for that? How do you still lobby for labor law when that kind of thing is not happening? You know, I don't have answers. That's
1: kind of an open question. That's um, there's a, a very good catalyst essay. Um, Catalyst or sister journal um, that Chris Mizano wrote on this question or this issue of of labor's double bind right now of um, you know the labor movement is historically weak right now labor law is especially uh, basically like pro corporate and anti worker um, so you know to to pass the pro act we would need uh, the strength of the labor movement to force the hand of politicians um, to get the labor movement to where it needs to be in order to do that, you would probably need something like the pro act. And so there's this, uh, again, like he says, a double bind. Yeah. And, um, but like you're, but like what you're saying, Paul, I mean, you know, that hasn't stopped, uh, workers from organizing in the past. And when it does happen, it's usually, kind of this massive rush that um, you we were looking at. We were looking at a graph a couple of weeks ago where like you see uh, unionization rates and every time it goes up um, like an initial kind of spark, it's this massive incline over the course right. of maybe a year or two. Um, and so, you know, it's it's like you're saying, it's really hard to predict what will be the catalyst to, to generate that result. But it has happened in, right. you know, pretty awful circumstances in the past. And so uh, I think we do our best to to kind of, you know, spur on those moments and and to support labor action when we can. Um, and then, you know, I guess some, some larger kind of historical forces beyond even what we can really, you know, understand in the moment and have to kind of, the tectonic plates of capitalism have to shift a little bit right. and then... Um, you know, we'll see some different outcomes, but yeah.
0: so in the meantime, just keep watching Jackman. You know, that's 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 what you gotta do.
1: Yeah. Um. Well, thank you for answering that question. And again, yeah. if people have questions, um, please just send uh send your questions in the live chat or in the comments. I see a couple already, and yeah, give us the hashtag #LaborPaul so that we can more easily find it. We'll we'll still try to hunt a little bit, but it'd be nice to give us that just that little extra help right there right
0: and i just hope if there is a superhero movie there's a place for labor
1: paul you know i can be a minor
0: characters uh
1: well i i think that's up to the audience to decide um audience you tell us where what what part of the superhero pantheon (laughs) does labor paul fall into That'll be next. Yeah. Next show I will address. I'm going to be stalking the comments now, but I will address that next, next show. Sounds good. Um, Okay. Well, I guess we can wrap up then. Um, So I'll let you take it away, I guess.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks again, everyone. Make sure you hit like and subscribe, submit any questions about labor and I'll try to answer it next show. Um, So we'll be here same time and place next Wednesday at six o'clock. Um, with another great show so have a great night everyone